I guess that's our Father's Day gift. The boys won, right? There you go. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Please turn with me in the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Hope you'll pray for Agape this week as they have their Bible school. One of our Main Street Revival friends in town. Hope you'll pray for Covenant Hope Church in Dubai, where Brittany and Todd will be going to church when they get to Dubai. Hope you'll pray for that church with me. And I hope we'll be able to pray over this text this morning together. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word by which you instruct us and speak to us and ready us for not only the salvation that is, but the salvation that is to come. I'd like to ask this morning that you would bless Covenant Hope Church in Dubai and Pastor Brian Parks, Todd and Brittany, soon to be born this next weekend on their upcoming wedding. I'd like to ask that you would bless Agape as you have blessed us this past week. We're thankful for the ministry that is Vacation Bible School, and the opportunity to share the gospel with folks that we otherwise might not have the opportunity to share the gospel with. And we trust you in their lives as we work together as brothers and sisters for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 15 is the longest chapter in Corinthians, and in our consecutive exposition, we are going to finish that chapter today and hopefully finish chapter 16, by early July, we do go through consecutive passages in a particular book of the Bible, and today we come to verse 50, and I think that this text is largely about winning. It's about our victory, and so I'm going to frame my message this morning around the idea of us winning. There's an old song that says, I'm a winner either way if I go or if I stay, uh, the lyric says, uh, we are winners. The Apostle Paul said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so I want to approach the posture of this message as victors, as Christ is our victory, as winners. Some of you think you've never wanted anything in your life. Well, I've got to tell you something. You're a winner in Christ. This message is framed that way. And I believe that if you will operate as the winners that you are, that you'll know more joy and your comings and goings in your Christian life, you'll know more consistency, I think. You'll have more confidence, quiet confidence. And in times where things don't make sense, and when you go through difficult times, dark night of your soul perhaps, you'll be able to remember that faith is our victory, that our victory is in Jesus, and that our victory is assured. I couldn't win from a grab bag. I mean, I've never won anything in my life. Maybe you feel that way. Well, today is about changing that mentality and the benefit is tremendous when we take God at his word. So let's look at how we can win as brothers and sisters in Christ, how we can win by facing our fears, and how we can win by being consistent in what we believe in Christ today. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, and really that plural, is it connotes brothers and sisters. It's the whole body. He's speaking to the church. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto the hearers. So we want to take this text on its parts and examine our victory in Christ, our winning, with regard to the brotherhood, verses 50 through 53, with regard to facing our fears, 54, 55, and 56, and then finally, with regard to our consistency, our steadfastness, our rootedness, verses 57 and 58. So let's first look at our winning as brothers and sisters. Look at me again. Since it's short enough, we can easily look back at a couple of the verses, this passage indeed. It says, I tell you this, brothers. The Apostle Paul is ending this longest chapter in 1 Corinthians, this treatise on the doctrine of the resurrection. He's ending it with reminding them of their familial status, and this is not insignificant. For you astute Bible readers, and for those of you that are new, you can catch on to this pretty quickly. If you read the first 14 chapters of Corinthians, if you read those 14 chapters, this seems to be a group of people that are confused about what it means to live like a Christian. If you were to read back through it, there's competing philosophies creeping into their message of the cross that causes them to be considered foolish by those that are perishing. They need to be reminded that it's the power of God for those that are being saved. There is problems in this church with not being willing to sanction and discipline and even excommunicate a really bad sexually sinning person in the church, 1 Corinthians 5. There are apparently problems with sexual immorality amongst the members and with inappropriate lawsuits we read about in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. There's even idolatry, or at least flirtating, flirtatiousness with idolatrous practicers, and clarity needed on that, 1 Corinthians 8. We read 1 Corinthians 9 and 10. We see how confused that they can be with regard to the Lord's Supper and the doctrines therein. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14, they made an absolute mess of the usage of the spiritual gifts as for the other believers versus just for themselves and their own pride. They misunderstood the role relationship between man and woman. These people, by all accounts, and certainly by accounts today, were confused Christians at best to us. And Paul either gives them the benefit of the doubt or firmly believes, as he writes this authoritative letter to the church at Corinth, that they are family. After having written all this to these people, he calls them brothers and sisters. 
And he does it consistently in this letter, but the fact that he's still doing it at the end of the letter. Now, don't misunderstand me, folks. I'm not standing here preaching a kind of easy believism that says, if you've ever uttered a sinner's prayer, regardless of what your life pattern looked like after that, you should have sure and certain confidence of eternal life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if Christians who have prayed to receive Christ and are walking with Christ have confusions, troubles, stunted growth, we ought give them the benefit of the doubt. We should keep telling them of the profession of faith that they have made, and we should continue to treat them as brothers and sisters until we just can't anymore, and then we should call them back to the faith that they once professed. I think there's a problem in the church. The problem with the tr- in the church that I see with regard to this first point is that we often assume that morally pounding people with how bad they are at being Christians is going to produce better behavior. The problem with that is strictly preaching morality does not get to the core of the gospel that cuts deeper than morality, penetrates to joint and marrow, and does spiritual work for spiritual people on the soul. Morality can be a kind of effective barometer for understanding the temperature in a Christian's life, no doubt. And it is true that as you get through Corinthians, especially at the very end of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul even writes, as if examine yourself, that you see that you're being the faith. But the overwhelming tenor of the letters is he's talking to them as family that are confused. We ought be really patient when we are walking with the brothers and sisters in the church. We should not be quick to assume in some kind of hot and cold way that they're kind of in and out of their marriage union with Christ. That seems to me to be not a best practice, not a great way of looking at this. Now, he calls them brothers, and he says to them, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This reminds me of Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, where Jesus answered Peter and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who did the revealing of Christ's Messiahship to Peter? Did Peter reveal it to himself? No, the text says flesh and blood or human beings didn't reveal it to Peter. Who had revealed the divinity of Jesus, the Messiahship of Jesus, to Peter? The text says our Father did. Listen again. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Peter, Matthew 16, for flesh and blood, human beings, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The Father had revealed to Peter the nature of, of Jesus. I think it's important that we remember that it is the Father that is revealing to people the nature of Jesus. Operating as the triune God, the Spirit regenerates a human being that they might hear and be converted. Jesus answered Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3 to this score, and he said, Verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? 
and be born. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That born againness comes from above. It is not something that we strictly get from another human being. And that fact should embolden us to live as winning brothers in Christ as we share this message of the gospel with other people. The fact that God goes before us, the fact that regeneration must precede conversion, should embolden us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Dr. Tom Schreiner wrote this. He said, Regeneration means that one has been born again or born from above. The new birth is the work of God so that all those who are born again are born of the Spirit. It's like 1 Peter says, It is God who causes us to be born again to a living hope. The means God uses to grant such new life is the gospel. For believers, quote, have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, 1 Peter 1.23 and James 1.18. Regeneration, or being born again, is a supernatural birth. Just as we cannot do anything to be born physically, it happens to us, so we can't do anything to cause our spiritual rebirth. Conversion occurs when sinners turn to God in repentance and faith for salvation. The Apostle Paul describes the conversion of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Quote, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Sinners are converted when they repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, trusting in Him for the forgiveness of their sins on the day of judgment. So God regenerates us and then we believe. God regenerates, and then we believe. Hence, regeneration precedes our conversion. Therefore, we give all the glory to God for our conversion, for our turning to Him is entirely a work of grace. End quote. Now, this is the thing about this, this way of thinking that is so patently biblical and helpful. There's this discussion out there about between uh, so, so-called Arminians and folks of other stripes to where, well, well, did I choose God or did God choose me? You, know, you don't even have to reckon that right here to say that God is the author of salvation. What does Jonah 2.9 says? It says, salvation belongs to whom? To us or to the Lord? You actually don't have to break faith with people over that here. And here's why. Conversion following regeneration is affirmed by many Arminians. Because what they would say is, is that, even if you still made a choice, you only made a choice after the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And so in the Reformation, the discussion around the Synod of Dort and Jacobius Arminius, if you're a church history person, circa 1600, early 1600s, the discussion was, did God so enable a fallen, reprobate human being to then be able to make a free will choice, or did God ensure the free will choice would be made after he regenerated the human being. There's no discussion amongst any of us that are not Pelagians about the deprivation of the human will, that we are dark inside, dead, needing to be saved. There's no discussion about that. So the question is, did God look through the annals of time and know that you would make that choice, or did God look through the annals of time and say, that's my chosen? Now, debate that all you want, but don't fall into the Pelagian trap 
Pelagius was a, was a heretic in the early church, 4th century. Don't fall into Pelagian trap of saying that God doesn't have to do a work on the human being before the human being can convert to Christ, because that's a trap and it's not biblical. You can discuss that that I said, but you can't really, with integrity from the Scripture, discuss whether or not regeneration precedes conversion. In my estimation, it certainly does. And I believe that that will keep us from always yelling louder, pounding the drum of morality. If only you believed. Sometimes it's not a belief issue. Sometimes it's an alignment issue. It's like you got a car and tires and the car and tires are okay, but if it's not in alignment, the thing just shakes all up and down the road, doesn't it? Sometimes we have believers, true enough, in the church, and they've got the right equipment. They've got a car and tires, but the thing is out of alignment. And if it gets in alignment, then God's role for you as a gospel sharer will be fanned into flame, brothers and sisters. See, God is already readying for himself a people. You need only tell them the gospel. God's already readying for himself a people. He's working on them, but the gospel still must be shared. The Bible says in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring the gospel. All the person that shared the gospel with me, how I love her to this day. I was in Sunday school as a child, and I'll never forget Arlene. Some of you have heard me talk about it before. She shared the gospel with me. And Arlene, when Arlene shared the gospel with me, I came to faith. I believed. Now, God had done a work on me to ready me for that, but I repented and believed in Jesus Christ. There's been some rocky roads from then, for sure. It hasn't been a straight line to sanctification, that's, that's for sure. But Arlene shared the gospel with me. For those of you that are believers and I assume a good many of you are, if you're not a believer, I would urge you to come to faith in Christ, to repent of your sin this morning, trust Him alone for salvation, so that you can have His testimony too. For those of you that are believers, do you remember who shared the gospel with you? Especially in proximity to when you actually came to faith. Do you love that person a little bit? At least you think finally of them, don't you? If that person didn't live up to the testimony that they told, it still doesn't diminish the gospel's power in your life, does it? But if that person's testimony was consistent with their life, you develop an affection with that person. And I think that's a good thing. I want you to be that person in somebody's life yet unseen. And I want someday some preacher to be standing here reminding someone else if the Lord tarries in his return 50 years from now, I want somebody to be a preacher to be reminded a whole new congregation of people. You remember how fondly you think of that person that shared the faith with you, the gospel that shared with you? And I want them to say, yeah. And I want them to think back and I'll say, you know, so-and-so shared the gospel with me. And that's, that's when I got started in the faith. You know, I know so-and-so did that and so-and-so did that. And I hope the same message can be preached if Christ tarries 50 years from now is being preached now. You get to go share that gospel. God's already readying people for himself. You just need to tell. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It should take the sting out of it a little bit. It should take the fear out of it a little bit. Just tell them the gospel. You say, well, I, I, I don't know exactly what the gospel is. Well, let me tell you what we've instituted in our Membership Matters course here at church is that we teach you how to share the gospel, 
And then we require in the membership interview that you're able to share the content of the gospel before we recommend you for membership in the church. So the newest members in this church should be able to share the gospel. And I said, boy, man, I've been a member for years. I wish I'd have had that. There's, you're in good luck. <laughs> We're intending on doing a membership matters course for members late this year, or early next year, in order just for members to kind of catch up on this. Not that you don't know the gospel, but to give you more confidence in knowing it to heart enough to share it. If you just want a crash course in it right now, although we've written and spoken on it so many times, if you are going to share the content of the gospel with someone else, you would probably want to remember three verses from Romans. Romans 3.23, 6.23, and 10.13. So if you want to write that down, I'll say it once more. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, 6.23, and 10.13. Now, 3.23 and 6.23 and 10.13, there's probably more than that that could be shared for sure. But that should get at the contours of the, the gospel message for conversion. Remember, remember that regeneration precedes conversion. And so you can have confidence to share this message with people and take God at his word and take people at their word until proven otherwise. I used to really be worried about this. I wanted to calculate morality before I shared the message of the gospel for repentance. It's just not really the way to think about it. The, the God's doing the work in people. They must convert, and then the morality should come downstream from that after sound teaching. I, I'll pick on, I'll, I'm not going to use details because I didn't ask him for the details first, but I know he won't mind me saying it. Brother Jonathan, when you came to this church for the very first time, you and I talked about the gospel on day one, didn't we? The very first day. And I remember sharing the gospel with you in my flesh thinking, ah, he's probably not going to get it. And I've not ever in my life been so, I mean, it's kind of an overstatement because it's happened many times in this church. But you're an example of the joy in my life. I look back at that and think, wow, what God did in your life, what it means. I'm, I'm not trying to set you up as some kind of an exemplar that never makes mistakes or is a perfect dad or anything like that, but you're a, a fine, to me, a fine example of a Christian. I see many things about the things that, that God's doing in your life that I want to be like. And, and, and it just really, it was really because I was so tired. It's probably like a VBS week type of a situation. I shared the gospel with you and, and really got out of the way, and God's done a great work in your life. I'm just asking that you all would have as much confidence in the gospel as I should have had that day when I share the gospel with Jonathan. How about we pray for that confidence? As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are winners. And so we can come to church as brothers and sisters, encouraging one another as such, because flesh and blood did not give us this gospel. God did. Point number one, flesh it out a little bit by looking at those verses afresh before we go to point number two. Flesh and blood, brothers, did not give you this gospel. It, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So behold, I tell you a mystery. He goes on to teach with an illustration what he's already said. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. That word moment is where we get our English word atom, like the smallness of an atom. Now, without getting into whether or not you can split an atom and all the bad that can come from that, what the author is intending here is that no more than you can shrink a penny to a smaller denomination, no more than you can shrink an atom in a moment, in an atom, in a twinkling of an eye, just like that, in an irreducible amount of time that you won't have time to prepare for, that will happen in a moment. There'll be no gap at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed too. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. So it has to happen. It's going to happen like that. And so we must ready the people that God is calling to himself by sharing the gospel with them. Would you share the gospel with them, functioning as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in this church? Chapter 15 says in verse 42, perishable for the imperishable. The difference between the, resurrect, the earthly bodies and the resurrected bodies. An earthly body exists in dishonor. It's raised in glory, chapter 15, verse 43 says. It says that an earthly body exists in weakness. It's raised in power. An earthly body is natural. It's raised spiritual. An earthly body is like the first Adam, a living being from the earth. The resurrected body will be like the last Adam, Christ, a life-giving spirit from heaven, verse 47 says of chapter 15 here. Verses 48 and 49, those who are of earth bear the image of the man of dust. Those who are of heaven shall bear the image of the man of heaven, the difference between the earthly and the resurrected body. Here in our passage, it says something of the mortal and the immortal. A practical implication for the doctrine of the resurrection is that the work you do will bring results that last forever. This is the greatest work on earth. Enjoy it. Invest in it. Love doing it. Watch God give the increase. I want to encourage you this morning as brothers and sisters to share the gospel, to have confidence in this gospel. And I want to encourage you this morning to face some of your fears, especially the fear of death. This text tells us that we are winners we are victorious in the face of death. So we're not just winners as brothers and sisters who need to get the benefit of the doubt, but we're also winners as people that can overcome the fear of death. That's really our big, big fear, isn't it? It comes right down to it. That's our chief fear. Look at verses 44, 54 to 56 afresh. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal becomes immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here he sums up the prophets. He quotes a minor and major prophet. He quotes from Isaiah and from Hosea. And, he's, and we read from the top of the service, Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the approach of his people will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Here he says, in summary, death is swallowed up in victory. And then quoting Hosea, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And then it says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And we'll stop right there. He's quoting the prophets, but he actually takes a dire prophecy against Ephraim from Hosea. And he turns that and says of the gospel that God takes what was meant for judgment and makes it in his divine justice through the atoning work of Christ, makes it for salvation. What we have earned for ourselves is clearly the judgment that was being pronounced in Hosea toward Ephraim. It was clearly the judgment that was being pronounced toward the rebels against God. And what we have gotten instead of prophetic judgment is the solution to the prophetic dilemma. That is salvation based on Christ's record, not on our own. It says in Hosea 13, 12, the guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. I want you to know that your guilt is stored up. Your sins are kept on record as an unbeliever. And I want you to know that when the regenerating work of Christ in your life comes to full confession in your conversion, I want you to know that you move from death to life. You move from guilt 
to godly, you moved from the record of your sin being kept to the record of Christ's sinlessness being counted as righteousness towards you. And I want you to know that you are a winner either way if you go or if you stay. It is your winning that drives your work. It's not your work that drives your winning. You are a winner as a brother and sister. You are a winner that can face your fear of death. I, I, I think we all have a certain amount of fear of death. I think we do. I think that's because death is an imposter. There's no such thing as just a natural death. Death is a result of sin, and sin was not natural in Eden. Sin was an imposter, was it not? You're Bible people. You know about how sin came into the world. It was the serpent tricking our first parents, wasn't it? And our first parents not trusting God. That's how sin came into the world. And death literally is the result of sin. We do all that we can to kind of push death off into the margins. We don't want to face it. But as believers, we are the ones that need to stare our biggest fear down and let the gospel come to bear on that fear. Now, I'm a, a young enough man still that for me to tell you how to face death is going to sound cliche and trite. It's going to sound like I don't know really experientially what I'm talking about. But together, as we think biblically about this, really, don't we all have that big fear of death? We do everything we can to put it off. And the world around us numbs that reality because they don't want to face their own mortality. But for us, we don't need to do that, do we? We need to look at it, and we, as we look at it, we need to come to let the gospel shine on that experience that as much of an imposter as it is, is still a very real experience for every one of us human beings, lest Christ return during our physical living life, and we'll still have to be changed to be caught up together with the Lord. We won't have this physically degrading body. We're going to have a glorified body. Now, the importance of this is found in this passage. Afresh, it says, death is swallowed up in victory. As a bit of a relevant aside, the word victory mentioned in verse 54, verse 55, it's mentioned again in verse 57, it is the word that a famous corporation in our time has co-opted to brand their company. It is the word Nike. It means victory. They grabbed that from Greek. I want you to understand now that the ending on the word is a little bit different in this text, but the, the root is Nike. It means victory is what it means. And I want you to understand today that death is swallowed up in victory. That in a way that conquering in this life will never actually give you satisfaction. In a way that you can't get through the messaging of Nike, you can get through the messaging of Christ and his gospel. And that is that even though outwardly you're wasting away, inwardly you're being renewed. Even though your conquests or lack of conquerors, if you've never won from a grab bag, if you don't feel like much of a winner, even though this life has left you unfulfilled and maybe even unachieving, even though that's the case, or even if you've relatively achieved and it's waning away, it's washing away, you are a winner in the Lord, and that is not an insignificant proposition. Because 
the victory that is in Christ, the victory that comes to us through the Lord, causes death to be drunk down, swallowed up, and gone and vanished because the second death you will never have to fear. This is why faith is our victory, and this is why as winners, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as winners, we can face our biggest fear of death, and we can stare that thing down, and we can say it has no power over me ultimately because death has been swallowed up in victory. Isaiah says it. Hosea intimates it. The whole panoramic view, the Bible preaches about it, and Corinthians says it explicitly. The doctrine of the resurrection gives us confidence that we win. And that winning drives your work. The fact that God is calling people into His family should give you today fresh confidence that your work in the gospel sharing is of eternal significance. That you are going to meet people in heaven that directly or indirectly impacted your understanding of the gospel. And people are going to meet you in heaven, and they're going to know that directly or indirectly you impacted their receiving of the gospel. God is pleased to use us for these things, and they're eternally significant. And we can stare down death, and in a way, really, that no therapeutic counseling alone can do, we can find health for our mind, bodies, and souls because we can stare at death and say, if my Lord Jesus went through death and drank it down and swallowed it and came out alive, then surely to goodness I can say with him, death has been swallowed up in victory. I will raise, rise again and have a resurrected life just like my Lord does. That's Christianity. And that's the confidence that you have. Not as a pompous winner, but as an assured person that is saved and that has a Savior. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the child share the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power, the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Revelation 20, 14 says on the score, the de then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew records Jesus as saying that we should fear the second death, not the first one. Don't fear the one that can harm the body. Fear the one that can throw the soul into hell. There is coming a day. There is coming a day. The sting of death, the bee sting, the scorpion sting of death, this text says, is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Well, that's a head scratcher, isn't it? We don't have time to go too far into that, but just simply to say... Romans 7.13 helps us a lot with this. It talks about the law. It says, Did that law which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Romans 8 says, Therefore, it, it, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So this, this sting of death that has come because of sin has been quarantined by the law. The law is a great teacher for us that we might see our inability to save ourselves. 
We need the law. We need to teach the law of Moses to our children, but not for some moral salvation, but to show that Christ is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law and to show that our victory comes through faith in Christ, that faith is our victory. Our victory does not come through keeping the law of Moses. It's not that we shouldn't teach the law. Galatians 3 teaches us that we must teach the law so that the children and those that are like children with regard to spiritual things might be convicted of their own immorality and turn to a spiritual saving solution, which is Christ Jesus, who does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Friends, as a point of application, we need the law. One of the big problems that we have when we're trying to share the gospel with other people is that they don't have a cognizance of their sin yet. They need to understand they're sinning against their creator God and that, that God is right to judge them and that they stand with a record of damnable sins on the docket if, in fact, they don't have some kind of a Savior substitute for them. They can't get to that point without understanding the sinfulness of sin and how death is a result of sin. Death is not a result of a God that's trying to play gotcha. Death is a result of an imposter who tricked our first parents into not taking God at his word. You don't make that same mistake. Take God at his word. Don't be tricked. Faith is your victory. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sting of death that is sin will slowly be kind of moved from the prevalency of your vision. The law that drove you to the gospel will not be sufficient for you to recalcitrate back into for your salvation. You'll be pressed again and again into faith because faith is your victory. Look at verses 57 and 58 finally. We win as brothers and sisters. We win. We face our biggest fears. Finally, we win, and so we stay steadfast, convictional in who we are and what we believe. Look at verses 57 and 58. It says, thanks or grace be to God. It's the same word we often translate grace. Thanks be to God who gives us the Nike, the victory, through Jesus. And then it gives us the only imperative. Therefore, verse 58, after 57 doctrinal verses about the resurrection, after reading over and over again what Jesus Christ has done for us and what the gospel is, he gets to verse 58 and he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, he wants to remind them again, not assuming they're not brothers, but actually speaking as they are brothers and sisters. He says, Brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the reason for your labor is that your labor is not in vain. The reason for your steadfastness is that what you're doing is not empty. It's not empty. It's not in vain. The reason that you are abounding in this work, the reason that you're staying the course is because it's not vanity. It's not empty. It actually matters. Sometimes we're working for the Lord and we have to be reminded of why, or we just sort of lose heart because we don't see immediate results. The fact of the matter is, whether or not I had seen immediate results the day that I shared the gospel with Jonathan, it still would have been right for me to share it with Jonathan. And whether or not Jonathan sees immediate results when he shares it with a family member or coworker, it's still right for Jonathan to share the gospel with a family member or coworker. We don't control the results, we follow the command. And it's not that I think that God doesn't want to give the increase, I just think that often. We've gotten out of alignment and the car's shaking. We're not following the command. Regeneration precedes conversion. Take heart. Have confidence. Go tell them the gospel and let the Lord take care of it from there. Let the Lord take care of it from there. Regardless of your 
understanding of how God's working in people's lives to the uttermost, know that he is working in people's lives, and he is pleased to call people to himself. Trust this gospel. Tell it to them. The semantic range of meaning in Greek for these words that are translated steadfast and immovable, this imperative, is like a really sturdy seat. It's like a real sturdy seat. And the antithesis is, if you were to do some etymological studies of the word, is an unsturdy seat. So if a seat were to be movable or unreliable, that would be the opposite of what we are called to be because of all this doctrine, the first 57 verses of this chapter. So quick story to illustrate this. We buy these lawn chairs at Sam's Club. Um, and my wife and I, we buy them, and so we take them to like softball games and outdoor gatherings and stuff. And one of them got rickety, and it, it, it basically broke. But if you're a featherweight like my wife and my daughters, they can still sit in it. But I can't because it started to set in the thing, has no featherweight, and it is movable. It's not immovable. It's not sturdy. And so as it started to set in the thing, I can feel it starting to give way, and so I just backed off and I got out of it. That is an unreliable seat. It's movable for me. This text is arguing, so I got a new chair. It's got shocks on it. It's really cool. You have to come by and see it sometime. <laughs> this text is, is, is calling us to be the chair that is sturdy because God's made us out of good stuff. We're to be the sturdy chair when it comes to faith. Because we are winning, we can play this game of life with confidence. We can be consistent. Our communication doesn't ring hollow when we talk about the gospel because we are convictional that that will see us through to eternal life. That death, as morbid and as unnatural as it is, is not the final stop for Christians. You're a winner. And your winnerness drives you not just to be a brother, not just to face the fear of death, but also to be immovable and steady. When you're sharing the gospel, you're not going to be very believable if you're all over the place. If they start start trying to lean on you and you about fall to the ground like that red chair that we bought at Sam's that wore out, no, 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 no. Beloved brothers and sisters, be, I, this is imperative, it's exhortative, be immovable, be a sturdy chair, always abound in the work of the Lord because it's not in vain. It's not in vain. It's not empty. It really, really matters. Stephen Um writes this about death. He says, you will never find any old myth a legend or a story of a single creature with all its accumulated wisdom and ancient teaching that says anything like death is just the great circle of life. He writes, whatever the myth or story is, it will always talk about death being unnatural. Death is always traumatic. It's obscene. It's counter to everything that is living. It's ugly, painful, sad, brutal, terrible. Death is an aberration. It's terrifying. Death is absolutely not natural. It's monstrous. It doesn't give you any options. Death is immutable in that sense. Death is swallowed up in victory, isn't it? That's what this tells us. The person next to you who might seem less interesting to you than otherwise might be, one day in a new heavens and a new earth, even though that person's weak and you're weak, we're going to be strong. Even though we are foolish, we're going to be wise. Even though we feel sometimes useless, we are going to be useful. Even though we are 
Slaves, we are of royal blood in the kingdom. The victory and imperishable life is not something that we will possess only in the future. We already have it now as an inheritance in Christ. If we already know that life has been won, if death has been defeated, if life has been secured, if it's been given to us, then we can walk forward with great confidence, joy, and victory. That's the point of this message. You've already won. It has ramifications for now. Live like it. Be immovable. Be a brother or sister that's present in the body of Christ at church. Face your big fears with your friends in the church and grow in confidence that faith is your victory. And we will see God do things in people's lives that we otherwise would have been blinded to because of the simple fact that we didn't share this victory in the gospel with them and let him do the work of increase. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are broken brothers and sisters. We don't feel like winners all the time. And when we do feel like winners, pride is lurking and creeping in, trying to run us off course. And yet, Lord, this is a passage written to people like us, reminding us of our family status as brothers and sisters, reminding us of the thing that flesh and blood didn't teach us, the gospel reminding us of how we are not going to forever be perishable, but we're going to be raised imperishable. Reminding us of this great doctrine that in a moment, an atomic moment, you are going to reckon accounts for people of faith and, unfortunately, for those without faith alike. We are the winners because of you. And today, Lord, I'm asking that you help us live like the winners that you say that we are. Help us to be immovable, sturdy, reliable workers in your harvest field, sharing this gospel to kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.